This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello and welcome to the final Country Hour for 2022. My name is Matt Stevens, filling in today for Cassie Huff. With New Year's Eve tomorrow, it's time to look back on the year you've had and more importantly, the year to come. Something that stood out in the last 12 months were prices for rural property. And there's some feeling that trends will continue into 2023. 2022 has been an extraordinary year. If we if we talk about markets and market returns, uh, the markets generally have been extremely strong. And you could argue that this is across the board. We have seen farm prices reach historical highs and that pattern has continued throughout the year. Although in the latter part of this spring in particular, there has been some softening of the market. That's coming up before half past 12. But first, people in Menindee Township and low-lying areas have been told to evacuate by 10 o'clock this morning with a major flood expected from today. River levels are expected to be above the 1976 level and this could continue through until tomorrow. There was a community meeting in Menindee yesterday to get some information out and Ben Logren is a news reporter at ABC Broken Hill and was there. Ben, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you going? Good, thank you. What's it looking like uh, today? So today uh, things are a bit frantic as you can probably tell. Um, property owners all along the low-lying areas, there's around 35 properties are expected to be affected. They are filling in levees, they're packing up, they're getting ready to go. At least some of them, the ones that we've talked to, are um, getting ready to to hit the road because, yes, that water is coming in fast. Uh, it's expected to hit 10.7 metres tomorrow morning. That is a record set uh, that it's beat since uh, it was set in 1976. And unfortunately, we don't know how long the 10.7 river level will hang around. So people are packing up and getting ready to move out for an indeterminate amount of time. What was the feeling at the community meeting last night, Ben? Uh, uh, Not too good. Uh, To say tempers flared is a bit of an understatement. There was a walkout after about 25 minutes because uh, the community members felt that their questions were not being answered or couldn't be answered more so by the SES. Key questions around, you know, whether there's going to be power outages, how long that will last how long the river's going to stay at 10.7 metres, will it rise from 10.7 metres, is there going to be issues along the roads, what's that going to look like? These were questions that the SES simply aren't able to answer. It's all about Water New South Wales, who unfortunately didn't have a representative there last night. So, yeah, uh, community members at the meeting were, were less than impressed. Ben Logren is a news reporter at ABC Broken Hill and in Menindee at the moment. Has this flood been expected at all? So, yes, uh, in a way, Menindee has been under flood watch for probably over a year now and the SES have maintained a presence in town for at least the last six months. Uh, the lake system is sitting at probably around 103% capacity. In terms 
of that, yes, uh, the town has been under flood watch for some time, but this most recent development about the river rising to 10.7 has seemingly come out of nowhere to a lot of people, which is why they're so sort of riled up. It, it was all well and good uh, come Monday, but then getting the message on Thursday that you had basically what amounted to 24 hours to, to pack up your things and go uh, came as a bit of a shock to people. Um, when it comes to the 10.7, the reason that it's so shocking is because the water is actually unaccounted for. It's come off the, the Tallywalker River, according to the SES. Mm -hmm. And because it's done that, it's bypassed the Wilcannia gauge, which is the only gauge between here and Menindi, uh, Wilcannia and Menindi, I mean. Um, so people actually don't know how much water is about to come through the weir and the system overall. You're listening to The Country Hour, and Ben Logren is a news reporter from ABC Broken Hill. So what what can you see this morning, Ben? What is, what is the river actually looking like compared to the town and where it normally is? So the river, just from me being here last night for the town meeting, heading to a spot where there was a, a road closed and then coming back this morning, the river has already risen probably a good four or five metres from there. So that just shows you how quickly uh, the water is rising. Right mm. now, the SES are mobilised all over town, same as the police. They're out there trying to help people evacuate from their homes, uh, it's particularly, obviously, the elderly people. Extra cops from Broken Hill have been brought in to assist in that regard. When it comes to the river, you can see that it's already breaching levees, particularly along Irrigation Road where we were. It's actually hop the road and it's into the properties on the other side away from the river uh, and just even at the bottom end of Yalta Street there's a levee that's already been breached around the back of the Menindi pub and so at this point we just have to wait and see what the water does come tomorrow morning. So the peak is expected tomorrow morning Ben? Yes yes it'll rise to 10.7 it's around 9.7 now it'll jump to 10.7 come tomorrow morning and from there it may stay at 10.7 for quite some time. This is why so many people were agitated last night is because when asked how long is it going to stay at 10.7, uh, none of the authorities who were at the meeting last night could actually tell people. All right. Is there any uh, chance or do you think there will be an answer to that question come through anytime soon? Uh, honestly, it's any man's guess. Uh, the weir that's controlled by Water New South Wales has been open to let around 65,000 megalitres through every day and there's no notice on how long that's going to maintain or whether that will increase itself. Really at this point it's just about people in affected areas having to move, having to get out uh, and then we yeah, wait to see what happens over the weekend. All right. Uh, ben, thanks so much for your time. Stay safe. Thank you. Ben Logren, a news reporter from ABC Broken Hill. 12 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Yeah. Uh, let's take a look back at some of the big and favourite news stories of the year. And for 2022 in the southeast, Elsie Adamo has been putting some bits and pieces together. The southeast is home to much of the state's meat processing, and 2022 saw abattoirs hit the headlines for several reasons. At the start of the year, the Tees Meatworks at Narracourt was the site of a COVID outbreak where about 140 workers were infected. Management had told employees they were still expected to come to work even if they tested positive to COVID-19 unless they were feeling unwell. 
The decision was approved by SA Health, which confirmed that a small group of critical staff who were asymptomatic with COVID-19 will continue working there to preserve food security. However, Woolworths temporarily suspended all supply from the Tees Narracourt facility while the issue was worked out. Pay negotiations at another abattoir later in the year also made news. Meat workers at JBS in Bordertown have been negotiating a pay deal for most of the year. Australasian Meat Industry Employees Union South Australian Branch Secretary Shara Anderson explains some of the concerns from the workers at the time. Uh, we've been in negotiations with the company since February um, and yeah, this latest offer is, is quite new, only a couple of weeks new. And, yeah, the, the workers, just, we're looking for an increase, not a decrease. Um, and, you know, we need that work-life balance. The negotiations did not end up in industrial action, though. The union and the meatworks have come to an agreement in principle, but it will still need to be reviewed by the whole workforce in January. In the middle of the year, a key lifeline for agricultural exporters came to an end. The International Freight Assistance Mechanism was brought in as a temporary support by the federal government to keep air freight routes open while the COVID-19 pandemic took hold and borders were closed. It cost taxpayers a billion dollars in total by the time it ended in June 2022. Southeast seafood exporter Andrew Ferguson relied on it for two years to keep his export business afloat. We have just about anywhere we, we could go on the subsidised flights through Singapore or through Hong Kong, we, we used extensively the flights that were available just because it was a reasonable saving, you know, sort of two or three dollars a kilo. Uh, when you're talking air freight pricing, you know, towards ten dollars, that's a that's a major save considering the flight that we were using before COVID, uh, you know, with air with air freight was sort of three or four dollars a kilo. So, you know, it, it jumped up dramatically, but then then if without IFAM it was, you know, it was way higher, so definitely a, 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 all, all, all a big help. And from sending seafood out of the country to bringing it in. Caviar is prized by chefs around the world. Technically, only roe from the sturgeon can be called caviar, but it's illegal to import live sturgeon into Australia for aquacultural purposes. There is strong demand for Australian product, though, and Peter Docking from the southeast is keen to farm sturgeon when he's finally allowed to. There is a big potential to replace the importation of caviar in Australia. Caviar from the beluga species is very, very valuable and the amount, if farmed potentially correctly by people who know what they're doing, then there is a good source of income and a great job opportunity for a lot of people around the district. The Federal Department of Agriculture, Fishing and Forestry is working on a biosecurity import risk analysis. A draft BIRA report is planned for release for stakeholder comment in 2023 and the process should be finished by December 2024. So after that look at some of the stories from the southeast, there's a lot to look forward to in 2023. True. Southeast Rural Reporter Elsie Adamo there. 16 past 12, you're listening to The Country Hour. I'm Matt Stevens, filling in for Cassie Huff today. And as another year ends, we take the time to look back on some of the stories that look, uh, to have made their impact across the state. Rural reporter for the North and West, Demetria Panagiotaris, has covered all things from grapes to grain and has been reflecting on some of those stories that stood out to her this year. 
from flood to fire with a sprinkle of snow and a dash of drought. The north and west has seen their fair share of wild weather this year. Not to mention unique crop disease pressures and the scare of foot and mouth reaching our shore. It's truly been a busy year filled with many highs and lows. However, one story that stands out and perhaps you could say ruffled a few feathers was that of the confusion around the phasing out of caged eggs. Although the official phase-out date was set for 2036, supermarkets moved quicker, which meant some egg producers were having their caged eggs turned away. Managing Director of Day's Eggs, Dion Andre, was concerned how some farmers would make the transition with limited support. There is no transition plan from a from a government perspective or a retail perspective. Farming families and, and businesses will have to try and find money to, to virtually, if you like, knock down their old home and build a new one at their own expense, basically, uh, just to satisfy the trend. It's going to be very difficult. There are businesses that will be able to cope and there are businesses that won't be able to. And uh, uh, the, the thing we have to be careful is that the national inventory is not affected in the long term and that consumers have accessible supply. Nobody likes short supply and we've found that out over the last few years when shelves are empty. And I think ultimately uh, government retailers and industry need to sit around the table and work out how this is going to be done before the announcements are made that it is going to be done. Uh, Now that hasn't happened but uh, in this industry we need 10 years minimum to try and transition and I think those numbers have been tabled in documentation and new standards but really nobody's really sat down yet and worked out how that that is going to happen and I think from a national perspective is a little bit uh, fraught with danger. And again, at this stage, these are aspirational targets and we treat them still as aspirational targets. Managing Director of Day's Eggs, Dion Andre. And since that story was covered in October, last month agricultural ministers met to discuss how the national phase-out would look. An update on that meeting will be provided early next year. Another story which I was proud to share was that of the Clare Valley's revolutionary mission to stop sealing their wines under cork and move to screw cap. Like so many other fantastic ideas, this one was brewed one night down at the local pub when 14 winemakers came together to find a solution for their wine taint. More than two decades on, 98% of Australian wine is being produced under screw cap and the Clare Valley has been titled as the Trailblazers. Andrew Hardy, director of Ox Hardy Wines, was the instigator of that pub rendezvous and one of the main drivers behind the movement. Screw caps had been done before in the um, late 60s, early 70s. It wasn't brand new technology, but it, uh, people didn't like it back then in the 70s. It, it sort of um, was, not, was not received well back then. We thought we could change that perception. Once the consumers started seeing it, the convenience factor came in as well. They didn't need a corkscrew anymore. But it really was, it was not at all about convenience, it was all about quality in the bottle. I think as, you know, the, the learning curve was very quick, people sort of got to realise that, that it didn't taste any good, some of these wines, so they, they were more willing to change. But it, the publicity and the, and the promotion that we did was vital. You know, the whole, the whole wine world looked at what we were doing with real interest and um, as, you know, saw an opportunity. Andrew Hardy, Director of Ox Hardy Wines. This year's grain harvest is set to be the second largest and the most valuable on record for South Australia. Viterra expanded production to accommodate the bumper crop and farmers were feeling optimistic. However, severe weather impacts and high input costs meant that the most valuable harvest may not necessarily mean the most profitable for farmers. 
Baruta grain farmer Barry Mudge shared his feelings on the harvest ahead. And so we went into the season with a fair bit of optimism. We had a wonderful start. Unfortunately, though, it got very dry in those middle months, and I think a lot of people had the same issue. By about the middle of August, things were, were getting fairly pear-shaped. Uh, but then it started raining again, which created an interesting sort of dilemma. So essentially, as we moved towards harvest, we actually had two crops sitting out there. One was, was almost, well, was ready to reap by about the beginning of October, and there was all this regrowth coming up through it, which wasn't ready to reap. And, and so we've been sitting there for about the last six weeks, unable to do anything because we've had all this green wheat through it. Now, we were fortunate enough to have quite a, a reasonable-sized lentil program this year, and we got all those off, albeit the last quarter or so got knocked around by the weather. We've had roughly between 100 and 150 millimetres here in the last six weeks, which is just totally unseasonable, but it's just the, one of those things that happens. Sometimes you get wet harvest, and the last one we, we looked back on, it was 1992, it was a really wet harvest, and this one's sort of equating something along similar lines, so it's been a bit of a battle. Mm, certainly has. Baruta grain farmer Barry Mudge yeah, ending that year in review for Demetria Panagiotaris, the North and West Rural Reporter. What a year it's been. 22 past 12. This is the Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. And Matt Stevens filling in for Cassie Huff today. 2022 was an extraordinary year for rural property prices and its family farms that are driving the market to historic highs. And while interest rate hikes have cooled prices in the cities, rural agents say it's having no impact on the price of farmland. Josh Becker has this report. Rural property prices in New South Wales continue to soar, with farming families ramping up their property portfolios. Chris Mears is Director and Principal of Mears & Associates. He says property prices have hit historic highs. Look, overall, 2022 has been an extraordinary year. If we we talk about markets and market returns, uh, the markets generally have been extremely strong. And you could argue that this is across the board. We have seen farm prices reach historical highs and that pattern has continued throughout the year, although in the latter part of this spring in particular, there has been some softening of the market. Traditionally, if I look at my business, 40% of my general business is farmers wishing to buy more land. Another 40% is off-farm investors wishing to buy farms, and the balance of 20% is international investors. If you look at it this year, it's, it's completely different, where approximately 95% of people looking at rural property are existing farmers who are wanting to buy more. Rural property agent David Nolan said off-farm investors have left the market and farmers are often competing with their neighbours. Yeah, well, we had one on Tuesday, which was quite um, owned by the Nichols family, who are a very well-known family in the Gundagai area. It's called Wandine. Probably one of the best commercial herds of shorthorn cattle in New South Wales, if not Australia. Just a magnificent herd of cattle, plus um, about 6,000 Merino ewe. So it was a and, you know, 400 of these short-on cows. So it was, a, it was a proper commercial operation. And two local farmers, while the auction was in Sydney, um, with 100-odd inquiries and 16 inspections, two local families locked horns, and we saw it go from 24 to 28 million. Now, a lot of people said, gee, that's a big sale. I, I think it's a very strong sale, but when you analyse it, 
the better country probably made six and a half to seven thousand an acre, and there was some um, slightly lighter country which probably made around four thousand dollars an acre. Mm, yeah, some uh, big prices there. Uh, that report from Josh Becker and Cara Jeffrey, and all um, uh, pointers seem to indicate that that will continue. 25 past 12. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau and see what's in store for the next few days. Tom Bowick is your forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology in Adelaide. Good afternoon, Tom. Hello, Matt. Uh, It looks like it'll be dry into the new year at this stage. Yes, uh, certainly for most of the state. We still have a bit of a remnant cloud band through the northern parts of South Australia today. Uh, there's been some isolated shower and thunderstorm activity in that, but it's on its way out, so we're really not too much left in that. Um, over the south of the state, there's a high-pressure... Well, there's a high-pressure system over the Tasman Sea that extends a, a, a ridge uh, back over the area to the south of the Bight there. That's keeping conditions pretty stable. So looks like uh, for the weekend, uh, we'll be um, for Saturday, Sunday there, so New Year's Eve, New Year's Day we'll be uh, looking at dry conditions um, throughout and the temperatures will uh, gradually be rising particularly into Sunday um, with uh, fairly light winds by then with that ridge weakening out as a a weak front moves to the south which won't be impacting South Australia directly Um, but um, yeah with those sort of light winds and sunny conditions on Sunday it should be pretty generally hot to very hot throughout maybe just warm if you're on the far southern coastal type uh, areas but uh, yeah dry weekend coming up and uh, a hot day for the first uh, day of uh, next year. Um, Now for Monday uh, and and through the week then uh, we do have uh, um, a new high pressure ridge uh, developing from the west there so uh, that will see some southerly winds developing near the sort of southern coast and the western coast on on Monday which will bring some cooler temperatures to those areas but it is still going to be uh, uh, in the hot range of temperature uh, as you move further to the north where the southerly change won't be extending um, yeah that far northwards so uh, um, a, a start of a change in the south on, on Monday um, we'll see chance of some shower and thunderstorm activity in the very far north of the, again developing on Monday and that activity looks like persisting through through the week but uh, yeah confined to the northern parts before it ultimately clears away uh, for the uh, later part of the week there. Now um, back to the uh, the milder change in the south there uh, it is likely that uh, that uh, those cooler southerly winds will be extending further inland as we move into uh, the the Tuesday and and middle of the week there uh, with the ridge ridge continuing to strengthen and expected that there will be a uh, quite a fresh maybe even strong south to southeasterly breeze there certainly on the coasts Uh, and uh, there may even be some isolated light showers around for the southern coast but not a great deal in it Uh, and then uh, through the later part of the week really persisting with that fresh um, southeasterly airstream. Now, as far as any rainfall totals go, there's not too much around, but the period we've got is from now until the end of Tuesday. Um, look, uh, 
in the far north with the remnant shower activity and, and the activity to come for Monday and Tuesday, there is a chance of some totals of up to five millimetres for the north of the pastoral districts mm-hmm. and some even some isolated totals possible of five to 15 millimetres with thunderstorms, but that's really in the far north. Uh, the remainder looks like being dry. Um, only exception there, there's a chance maybe of less than a millimetre near the southern coasts, mostly on Tuesday as that southerly wind picks up. So um, it's back to you, Matt. All right. Thank you very much, Tom. Have a happy New Year's. And to you. Thanks. Thanks, Tom, Matt. Tom Burwick, your forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology in Adelaide. For the Upper Western, mostly sunny with a slight chance of a shower in the southeast in the afternoon and evening. A near zero chance of rain elsewhere. The chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening. Overnight temperatures falling 21 to 27 with daytime temperatures 36 to 41. And for the Lower Western, humid and mostly sunny. Slight chance of a shower in the Far East in the afternoon and early evening. And near zero chance of rain everywhere else. Daytime temperatures reaching the mid to high 30s. You're listening to the Country Hour on Friday, the 30th of December. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello there. My name is Matt Stevens, filling in for Cassie Huff today. And great to have you along for the last time in 2022. Coming up this half hour, when different animals collide. So then I went back about oh, two weeks later and the little foals back there with all the cattle and it was really poor then, you know, when they're little, it's only a month old. Then I seen a cow looking after it, sort of. It was with this cow and I just shook my head because the cow never had a calf. She was a dry cow and she belonged to one of my mates. Then when I went back a week after that, the little foal was sucking the cow. And I've never seen that in my life before. (laughs) You'll find out the end of the story before one o'clock this afternoon. But the first is half hour. We need to check in for some news headlines. And it's good afternoon to Matt Coleman. Hello, Matt. In the news this afternoon, Riverland locals have welcomed changes to the ban on water activities encompassing the River Murray NSA that will allow land-based fishing. Yesterday, the Department for Infrastructure lifted speed limit restrictions for personal watercraft at Lake Bonnie, which is disconnected from the river. It also clarified land-based fishing and yabbing is allowed at all locations, despite the prohibition of swimming, boating and the use of of other vessels. The SES is planning to build a temporary flood levy near Manham to protect the town's existing embankment from encroaching floodwaters. On Wednesday afternoon, a close-by rowing club stormwater pipe burst, causing water to bubble up through the reserve on the dry side of the levy. Residents in the area were initially told to evacuate as a precaution, but it was deemed safe enough for most to return with water being pumped away. And a teenager has been arrested for allegedly throwing a bottle of water at a staff member at a fast food outlet in Adelaide CBD and damaging a door. Police were called to the outlet on Hindley Street about half past ten last night to reports of a woman acting disorderly. The 19-year-old from the northern suburbs was charged with disorderly behaviour, property damage and assault. More news at one o'clock. Thank you very much, Matt. Matt Coleman in the newsroom. It is 28 to 1 on a Friday afternoon. After an earlier drop in visitor numbers, it seems tourists are heading back to towns along the River Murray to get a good look at the high water. 
The peak is still a while away yet for Swan Reach, where a steady stream of cars have been driving through to check out the floodwaters for themselves. Publican Craig Fromm told Eliza Burlage that he's been flat out feeding all of them. It's been exciting, I suppose, is the uh, way I would put it. Um, it's exciting in the way that watching the river come up. It's exciting in the amount of people that uh, want to see it because it's a, a phenomenon that happens every 50-odd years. So it's, it has been very exciting, I suppose, yes. I didn't get to, to catch up with you today on the on the lunch rush, but I, I was overhearing people saying, oh, that... They've seen the lookouts more full than they'd ever been and just plates were flying in and out of the kitchen. I just have to ask, how many dishes do you think went out today, by the way? Well, I had the privilege of working in the kitchen myself today, so we always count them afterwards and we're three short of 200. Oh, wow. So the population of uh, Swan Reach came and ate at the pub today. That's (laughs) what what you would have had. Around 200 is the population of Swan Reach, yes. Yeah. Has the floods and and I guess the discussion around floods, how has it affected your business? It was a bit hectic in the early parts. There was a lot of confusion and angst of whether we're going to lose electricity due to floodwaters. So we purchased a generator, like many other people have done. And then now that the floodwaters are pretty much are here, and uh, we've only got you know a couple like I said, a couple of weeks till the peak. It's all calmed down, I suppose. It's it's turned into a phenomenon that everyone wants to come and see. I mean, it's been sorry for the uh, shack owners. A lot of them have gone out in their tinnies and and looked at their shacks and brought back photographs. I took mine out a few weeks ago before they're only like half under, and now a lot of them are quite well under, nearly up to their roofs. But I suppose in the first part, there's definitely a lot of angst with, um, with the high water threat of electricity, but now it's just turned into one of those natural phenomena that everyone wants to see. Have you lost bookings over the summer period? Yes and no. So because of the shack being gone, there's like 150 plus shacks in Swan Ranch, and that's not even counting like big band and surrounding areas where generally they'd be all full, especially with the Christmas and school holidays, and they patronise the hotel very well. Especially, especially the bottle shop and meals and things at night times and that. I suppose it's just changed in the sense that a lot of people came in to look and they and they're doing a it seems like they're doing a loop. They cross Murray Bridge or Blanche down, call into here. Uh, it's where one of the only well, it's a beautiful place to watch the river go by. We've got one eighty degree views of the whole thing, but and they just either cross the other bridge and then head home again. It just seems to be a nice day trip loop for a lot of people. And uh, yeah, how long have you been running the Swan Reach Hotel for? I think it's been 19 months now, so it's been interesting 19 months. I grew up in this town as a, as a kid, and it's just been great to come back to the hotel and be able to purchase a lease and with John George and Margaret and to uh, and just to give back to the town, like things that I've learned along the way. And, and it's just the first year we had summer was um, hit with COVID stuff. We were cut back to 25% capacities. We are quite lucky that our first year when I got here, I put a new lawn in out the back, so it's good for kids to play on. We had, ended up using that as an outdoor area. So we got through COVID during using using the lawn, but then now we've got the floods and it's just changed things again, like just the people's and our mentality of uh, when we are busy and when we're not busy. And you said you, you grew up uh, in Swan Reach. Did you ever imagine that you'd, you'd return and, and buy the pub where you grew up? It was, well, it was always a... Um, yes, I grew up like the old Swan Reach. Went to school here at Swan Reach. And it was always maybe a, uh, a childhood dream that that maybe I could do that one day. And then, to be honest, I kind of really just about gave up on the idea because it wasn't really coming about. And then an opportunity had come up and, yeah, I 
sort of thought we'd have a crack and we got into it. So my partner Tammy as well, that was all she lived in the hills before, so it's a um it's a change for her as well. But it it's definitely a um mutual decision to have her own place and we already and I already knew the challenges of um the Saunders Hotel. It's like a, it's a small town. It is hard to get staff. I mean we've had to utilise um our accommodation rooms we do to, 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 for staff. If we, you know, we're still advertising now. We're always advertising. We just give anyone a go. But yeah, it was just a, it was just a chance that I got. I got and I took it. I suppose. What did your dad do, by the way? Was he a publican or anything? No, no, my dad's a farmer as well. So he's oh. uh, working himself towards retirement. So he's, he's been on the land around here for well for all these days. You know, fifty plus years. So. Oh, wow. What is he from? Uh, he's just these sheep and cereal, just like most, most of the farms in Sarah do the same thing. Yeah. Sheep and cereals. What did he think about you uh, buying the local pub? <laughs> he reckons he's never been to the pub so much in his life. It's been a good thing. I mean, especially with them retiring soon and, and it's good to be around them just to uh, see him through that. And they don't bother helping me here at all, that's for sure. But it's, uh, <laughs> but it's good to have them around. They help buy, they buy drinks. That's about it. Glad to hear the pub's going well. Publican Craig from from the Swan Reach Hotel talking to Eliza Burlage. And it really is a, a great sight to see the river in flood. Uh, as long as you respect it and keep your distance, you'll, you'll be safe. And, it, and you can get in and out quite easily. There's no major restrictions to roads. It's, uh, it's well worth the look if you get a chance over the next couple of days if you've got a break over New Year's. 22 to 1. Uh, pig farmers are waiting anxiously for a vaccine to protect their animals from the Japanese encephalitis virus. The virus is carried by mosquitoes, and with all the wet weather, authorities are warning it could be a big problem with summer. Uh, the summer's first case in humans was detected last week, and there are two piggeries dealing with it in their animals as well. Edwina Beveridge farms pigs in Young and is the spokesperson for the sector. She told David Clawton that they haven't had a case on her farm this year, but she's frustrated that a vaccine for pigs won't be available during the peak summer months. I think if there's just a couple of positive cases, we won't be seeing anything yet. Generally, uh, you find out that you have Japanese encephalitis in your pigs when you get a lot more stillborn pigs being born so maybe those two farms that have tested positive now um, are starting to see that and, and that they've sent some samples off for testing and found that out. I haven't heard of people saying they're seeing big effects yet. It's probably a little bit early in the year for it um, because how Japanese encephalitis affects our pigs is a sow is bitten by an infected mosquito uh, and it impacts her if she's, you know, just at the right point or the wrong point in her pregnancy and um, and then the, the piglets die in utero. So, and then you don't find out till they're born, till she's due to farrow. So, um, you know, there is a bit of a time lag between, uh, you know, your pigs being infected and actually seeing it. And is it possible to protect... Your pigs, I know there's talk of a vaccine for humans and there is a vaccine around, but what about protecting the pigs? Yeah, look, there's lots of things you can do to protect pigs. It's hard to know uh, exactly what works. Obviously, a vaccine is uh, um, the ultimate solution. Um, certainly, all of our staff are vaccinated and, you know, having people vaccinated is a, a really big thing and it's a disease that's been around for a long time overseas, so vaccinating humans is nothing new. Uh, vaccinating pigs is nothing new either. I believe in countries overseas, they vaccinate their pigs. Um, it's just getting that vaccine available to us in Australia. That is the challenge. 
And I believe there are three companies who are working on projects to develop a vaccine, uh, and some of them are up to testing stages, but no one is expected to have a vaccine for us just yet. So it's such a pity that we couldn't get the vaccine now when it would be really useful. Um, I think it, you know, the, the reports I've heard say that we might have a vaccine available in May or June next in 2023. What's the hold-up, do you know? Oh, I think it's a testing process. So they could bring the vaccine in, but then they need APVMA approval, and that's uh, uh, not a speedy process. But as a pig producer, are you frustrated by the delays? Oh, look, I would have loved it. would have been worth twice as much if we'd got the vaccine in November uh, and to know that we could sail through this period without a worry. You know, it's been such a wet year. Who knows what next year will be like, knowing our luck, we'll get the vaccine, we'll all spend our money buying it, and then we'll have a you know really dry year yes. and not so many mosquitoes. <laughs> That's right, quite possibly. Um, and so in terms of the human vaccine, no issues there? No, no issues there. It's been, uh, you know, we've we found locally it's been wonderful and really easy for our staff and new people to get. Mm. Uh, pork producer Edwina Beveridge talking about the Japanese encephalitis virus. And if you suspect Japanese encephalitis in your stock, you have to report it to the 24-hour emergency animal disease hotline on one 800 657 G'day, Brian Nankervis here, just letting you know I have a very special guest on Songs and Stories. Hi there, this is Anthony Albanese on Songs and Stories. Not so much as Prime Minister, but just as a music fan. And in the second hour, Paul Kelly with his three significant songs. Catch up on the latest episode of Songs and Stories with Brian Nankervis and guests Anthony Albanese and Paul Kelly. Available now on the ABC Listen app. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Yes, it's 18 to 1 on a Friday afternoon. A Brahmin cow and a Brumby foal. It may sound like an unlikely match, but an amazing bond has formed between the two animals on a far north Queensland cattle station. And a photo of the pair has gone viral online. The cow at Pack Saddle Station in Mount Garnet adopted the wild foal after its mother died, much to the amazement of Grazier Rob O'Shea. Well, I was just out there and I couldn't lick out nothing. This little foal come walking into the dam with a mob of cattle, you know, a mob of cows and that. And I'd seen it about oh, two weeks before that and it was out of an old Brumby mare and the old mare died, you know, from old age. And... I never took any notice, and I just thought, poor little thing, you know, you'll die too. So then I went back about oh, two weeks later, and the little foals back there with all the cattle, and it was really poor then, you know, when they're little, it's only a mutt foal. Then I seen a cow looking after it, so it was with this cow, and I just shook my head because the cow never had a calf. She was a dry cow, and she belonged to one of my mates. Then when I went back a week after that, the little foal was sucking the cow. And I've never seen that in my life before. No one ever has. And now she, that little foal, has sleeps with all the calves. It whinnies to the cow and the cow butter and answer it. She baths it and she's made a real mother of it. Another Brumby stallion come into the dam and it was coming over to the little foal and the cow into the stallion and horned him and chased him away and that was it. That's how protective she is of it, you know? And they're still there today and... The little foal is really approved out of sight. It's shown up now and it's still sucking the cow. 
it sleeps with all the little calves at the dam and it just thinks it's a cow now, I suppose. I don't know. Incredible. So what will happen with this foal when it gets old enough to be weaned? Apparently there's a lady out in uh, Richmond that wants the little foal. So we can, she's going to rear it on from there and we'll give it to her. So cow's milk apparently is not ideal for foals. I think it can give them digestion issues. Have you seen it having any problems or do you think it's going fine on the Brahmin milk? No, it's going really good. It's going really good, mate. Someone else said to me, a, a cow's milk's no good for a foal, but it must have had the first month of milk off the old mare before she died. So it must have had enough milk to get it going and now the cow's milk was taken over and... It's shiny now. It looks really good, so it can't be affecting it in any way. Amazing. So, so far on Facebook, more than 1,400 people have reacted to the photo. It's been shared nearly 6,000 times, and you've got a lot of comments as well. Why do you think so many people are so heartwarmed by this story? Well, no one has ever seen it in their life. I've been in Grazia all my life. And all the stations around me too, everyone. Whoever I showed it to, they've never seen it in their life and probably never see it again, eh? You know, that cow is worth her weight in gold. Looks like she would take anything on to look after it, to rear it. You know what I mean? And I understand you have more reasons than that to be celebrating. You just got married, is that right? Yep. We've been together a long time and she just said, I want to get married before I'm 61. So we just got married and... Congratulations. Where did you tie the knot? At the Yungaburra Gillies Roadhouse. And another cause for celebration, you've had some really good rain as well. Over 100 millimetres in the last couple of days. Was it getting a bit dry or was this rain really needed? Oh, yes, mate. It was drying out, yes. Getting very dry and, yeah, we're putting a lot of lick out for all the cattle. But, you know, they've come ahead now again, eh? so it's all good again now. We'll just wait and see now if it keeps coming or... They say in a big wet, so I just hope they're right, eh? How about your neighbours around the place? Is everyone benefiting from the rain as much as you are? Oh, yeah, everyone's getting some. Yes, they're all happy, eh? That's a good thing, eh? Yeah, no, this is good to get this rain, I tell you, because I was getting worried I didn't think it was going to come, you know? Well, it sounds <laughs> like it's been such a lovely springtime for you. You're married, you've got a baby foal, um, and you've uh, got rain. Everything's coming up beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's all coming together nice, eh? <laughs> Plenty to smile about there. And who would have thought a foal and a and a, a Brahmin cow? Just amazing. Uh, Grazier, Rob O'Shea, talking to uh, Tanya Murphy. Earlier you heard from the uh, Swan Reach Hotel where they've been busy in the uh, past couple of days with people coming through. And uh, Craig has been in touch to say it's even busier today with people coming through for a look at the river. So there you go. Sounds like the must-do thing as we head into New Year's. Speaking of New Year's, the peak body for Australia's organic industry is optimistic about demand for its members' produce. That's despite the rising cost of living pressures as we head into 2023. Nikki Ford is the Chief Executive of Australian Organic Limited, and she says research from earlier this year shows that on average, organic products are around 30% more expensive than conventional items across the supermarket shelves, so not just fruit and veggies. However, some lines are cheaper. She's talking here with Peter Somerville. We 
we're talking to some growers over the last sort of few months and some of them have um, you know, not had products available or they've had crops wiped out three times this year, uh, which is challenging. We know some grain growers um, haven't even been able to plant their summer crops. So I think it's an interesting um, challenge for us with these ongoing weather. I mean, I'm based here in Brisbane and uh, we're in December and it's a really cold morning this morning with lots of rain. So we're in unusual times and I think um, people being uh, clever about where they're buying their product and really looking at seasonality because that's going to be one of the other contributing factors to availability. Is um, And this is something we've probably got desensitised to over time because we've had so many products or every product available to us in the real time of the year. I think we need to think about what has nature intended for us at which time of the year and that's probably going to be where your savings are if you're looking to buy you know certain exotic um, fruits um, during uh, cold months or non-accessible months then they're going to be more expensive of course. Of course as you say availability has been problematic but is the demand still there are people still chasing organic products? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're about to put out some... Uh, we're in the middle of doing research right now, which will come out early next year, around uh, what the market actually looks like. But certainly anecdotally from what we're hearing uh, across our members and across the industry is that you know demand, especially over the last two years with the challenges to export markets, um, products have been consumed in the domestic market and there's been no loss uh, given those, that inability to get outside of the country at affordable prices. Um, so we know that people want more. Um, globally, people have been wanting more, uh, especially because organic provides you a product that doesn't have all the additives that non-organic products have, and that's from additional chemicals in production all the way through to additives um, in new manufactured or um, livestock products. So people want higher quality products that don't have the additives, and that's what organic, certified organic um, provides you. You mentioned earlier, I think it was uh, organic produce is around 30% more expensive. Um, given the cost of living pressures, is that turning people away lately? So that's a category average. So 32 is across all different categories, not just fruit and veggies. Um, look, I think people will be um, shopping to their needs um, regardless, but we have seen um, evidence in the last research we did that you know, those who are buying organic on a regular basis have actually bought more. Um, in fact, um, the last market report that we provided uh, last year um, demonstrated that 56% of those who were buying organic actually bought more than what they did previously. Uh, and so while people are watching where they're spending their money, um, there is um, certainly uh, evidence to suggest that those who are spending it in that space actually see that as a value option. They mightn't be going out as many nights um, to have dinners out, but they'll be cooking in. And we certainly saw that trend, you know, explode over COVID when no one could go out. People were trading up to a more premium product. Um, and that, that hasn't um, significantly changed uh, in the last year. Um, but obviously, um, you know, people will still continue to... Uh, edit um, their budget pattern over the coming years. But the value that comes with organic isn't just price. Um, the quality and the value that people put on the environmental impact is also a significant player in consumer decision-making. Is there a lot of room for growth in this sector with organic produce? Are people looking to expand uh, the amount that they grow? 
Yeah, well, I mean, you only have to look at the two major retailers who um, have significantly expanded their organic offering. And look, that's where uh, the growth area is. We know, again, through market reports that we've done for over a decade, most people are shopping organic in the major retailers. Um, and that breadth of range um, really has been a focus for both of those retailers for the last you know, uh, three to five years. Um, you know, each of those retailers are actually trying to get more operators on board because the demand um, is outstripping the supply. Mm. Uh, Chief Executive of Australian Organic Limited, Nikki Ford, talking there to Peter Somerville. Eight to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. We know there's a bumper grain crop coming, but Australian farmers now provide 80% of a popular natural pesticide used in gardens across the world extracted from the pyrethrum plant. Grown commercially in Tasmania and Victoria, there are more and more bright white fields of daisies dotted across northern Tasmania this year than have ever been seen before. Pyrethrum, as well, is in for a bumper harvest, says Mark Raspin from Botanical Resources Australia. But thanks to the poor weather, this year's crop is already more than a week behind schedule. As global demand for pyrethrum, a natural insecticide soars, so too have the amount of farmers growing the crop. And despite hardships caused by the weather, pyrethrum growers in Tasmania and Victoria are preparing for their biggest harvest in six seasons. My name's Mark Raspin and I'm the pyrethrum production manager with Botanical Resources of Australia. Mark, how is pyrethrum going this year? Yes, it's going pretty well despite the the conditions we've endured over the last 12 months. It has taken a bit of a toll being so wet and also the, the cold, frosty June didn't help onto growthy plants and we did experience some dieback. But given all the rain that we've had, the crop in most instances is still um, holding up pretty well and looks to be dis- displaying some good good quality and hopefully some good yield coming through. I want to just talk about pyrethrum in general a bit too. It's It seems to be something I'm seeing more and more of on the coast here. We look around and there's fields dotted around the place everywhere. Is, is it a growing industry? Yeah, it's definitely a growing industry and for this year it'll be our biggest harvest in six seasons. So we've certainly got more in the ground and looking forward to getting it into the shed. Our sales opportunities are high, so we are certainly looking at uh, further expanding the industry in the in the coming two or three years. Where are you hoping to expand to? At the moment, it's pretty much just in the north. Are you hoping to go south? Will we see it in the Midlands? No, the south and Midlands are probably too cold a climate to, to grow it. And if we have a wet season, the soils don't stand up that well. We really need free draining soils and a temperate climate. So we also grow pyrethrum in Victoria and here in Tasmania we are down in Hagley, Bishopsburn, the northeast, and as far as uh, Sisters Hills. So it's a very competitive landscape out there in farming here and in Victoria. There's a lot of options for growers and a lot of attractive options currently, uh, even with things like fat lambs and cattle uh, earning growers, good income, so it is is uh, very competitive but our our increases will come where we're currently growing. What about globally? How What's the appetite like in the global market for pyrethrum? In terms of sales it's very high. The um, end user is after more pyrethrum so our, our customers are certainly interested in gaining more and there's always interest in other customers coming on board to, to buy pyrethrum. So really it's a matter of trying to produce enough to satisfy them 
We produce just under 80% of the total global demand and there are some other countries out there like Tanzania that do also produce and contribute to the world supply. It's a, it's a sort of natural insecticide, isn't it? Has there been a shift in attitudes towards natural products? I believe so, yes. In the EU and the US, a lot of synthetic chemistry struggles for re-registration. So it's, it's something that uh, consumers and growers or farmers can no longer use. So there's certainly a high demand for products like pyrethrum in the market. Northwest Tasmanian farmer Des Hingston started growing pyrethrum about 20 years ago and he hasn't looked back since. I'm Des Hingston. I'm Jordan Hingston and I'm a farmer. My grandfather came here, near, come here in about 1945 and been in the family line ever since. This very block that we're standing on now, could you describe it just for our radio listeners where we're standing? Oh, in God's country. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, we're probably about eight k's inland from the sea, looking across towards North Motton from here, undulating type of country, good draining soil, and pyrethrum seems to suit our industry reasonably well. You've been farming here your whole life, as has Geordie. You must have grown a lot of crops over that time. When did you start growing pyrethrum? Yeah, we've probably grown pyrethrum pretty consistent in the last 20 years and I guess we headed that way um, with other crops becoming a bit more unviable than what we were used to. So, What about it um, attracted you? Yeah, the t- time of the year it was grown and the, the work that we got to put into it, you know, we enjoy that type of work. It's been um, a rough year in terms of the weather. How has the crop gone this year? Really struggled with the, all the rain that we've had, um, but it's seemed to have stood up reasonably well and we've had a bit of sunshine and warmth in the last you know few weeks and it's helped it a lot. If we can get this sort of weather towards harvest, it'll be very handy. Geordie, I might ask, how old are you? Uh, I'm 15. And you have plans to stay, stay on the family farm? Yeah, that would be the... That'd be the dream. Just because it's been in the generation for so many years and I really enjoy it. Do you reckon you'll bring in some new tech into the farm when you're in charge? Yeah, hopefully. I really like the GPSs in the tractor. (laughs) (laughs) Des, how does it make you feel to know that your grandson's keen to take on the farm? Uh, I absolutely love it. Um, It's what keeps me going, what gets me up over morning. How's the pyrethrum going this year? Is it on time? Good question, Meg. With all the rain and the mild conditions, it's certainly running seven to ten days later than what we've seen historically. Uh, we haven't had a whole lot of heat. It's been very mild. So for the for the uh, temperature-wise and the crop mature, maturing slowly, it's very good for um, building the pyrethrums in the flower. So we'd certainly hopefully see a spike in that. But to finish off, we really need to see plenty of sunshine and a bit of warmth but we are certainly going to be a week to to, uh, 10 days late commencing our cutting this year. Mm, Product in demand. Meg Powell ending that story about pyrethrum. Well, that's it for the Country Hour for 2022. On behalf of your regular presenter, Cassie Huff, and all the rural reporters around South Australia, I'd like to wish you a safe and happy New Year. Stay safe, especially with your New Year celebrations. And Brooke Nindorf will be with you Monday afternoon from 12 o'clock. But right now, it's 1 o'clock news time. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.